0: Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd.
1: And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and following the equator. That
0: seems like a roundabout way of saying around the world. It's how Mark Twain said it in the title of his 1897 book, which we'll get to a bit later. Oh, he didn't write the 2010 action thriller Green Zone, did he? No, that was
1: Brian Helgeland, uh, Paul Greengrass directing, of course. But today we're talking to Special Counsel Jeff Peterson about the power struggle between the states and territories when it comes to regulation and how that's leading to new
2: solutions and new directions in the relationships between the governments. Now in the last sort of five to 10 years, as we've seen more instability in energy markets, greater concern around security of supply and reliability, We've seen the states stepping in more than they had in in that sort of 90s, early noughties period. And an example of that is in New South Wales, where we have now a specific regulatory regime that's being set up to deal with the deployment of infrastructure in renewable energy zones.
0: Those sound like green zones to me, but before we get to that, what's been going on around the grounds? Probably the
1: biggest news is the data breach at Optus, Australia's second largest telco, where a hacker has got hold of the personal information of almost 10 million customers, and looks like for nearly 3 million of them that includes details of their passports and driver's licences.
0: And nobody seems entirely sure what happened, whether this was a sophisticated attack or Optus left a window open, as someone said, and even whether the information's still out there.
1: Oh, that's right. Someone claiming to be the hacker released details of about 10,000 customers and threatened to release or sell the rest unless Optus paid a ransom of $1 million. I won't do the Dr. Evil voice here. But then they said they'd changed their mind and they'd wiped all the data, though it's hard to trust that completely, of course.
0: Yeah, I guess we have to act on the basis that the information is out there and it's in the wrong hands. And it's not great for Optus either way, is it? It's not great,
1: but legally the situation is a bit unclear as well. Under the Privacy Act, Principle 11 says that if you hold personal information, you have to take reasonable steps to protect it from interference, unauthorised access or disclosure, and to destroy or de-identify it when you don't need it anymore.
0: So if it was a really sophisticated attack, maybe you've taken reasonable steps to protect it. But if you've just left your window open, maybe not.
1: Maybe not. Uh, And a serious or repeated breach of the privacy principles can attract a civil penalty of up to $2.22 million. Is that per customer or? Interesting question. The assumption seems to be that failing to take reasonable steps is a single act that only applies the once. And that's how the Information Commissioner is treating it in the ongoing case against Facebook. Mm-hmm. Compare that to the way she's applying Privacy Principle 6, which is arguing a separate breach for each disclosure of personal information.
0: So Optus could only be on the
1: hook for a little over $2 million. That seems to be the government's position, uh, and that's why Home Affairs and Cybersecurity Minister Claire O'Neill has said that they'll also be setting up a reform task force to look at penalties and minimum cybersecurity standards to apply more broadly than they do now.
0: Right. Well, our partner, Simon Burns, has made the argument that the real lesson here is about data retention more than cybersecurity in response. Because on the one hand, businesses are required to keep various bits of personal information for various lengths of time. But on the other, the more information you have, the more you have at risk. Exactly. And another of our partners, Leslie Sutton, was in the AFR pointing
1: out that we need simplicity and structure so organisations have certainty. Because if things aren't crystal clear, you might think that the safest approach would be to keep everything forever. But as we're seeing now, that isn't
0: always the case. And you mentioned privacy penalties, but didn't the previous government put up an exposure draft bill that would increase maximum penalties to the competition and consumer calculation?
1: They did, but then they lost the election. And now the old government's asking the new government why they haven't introduced a bill the old government spent three years not introducing. I oh. they'll get onto it soon.
0: Right. Well, what about the supersized competition and consumer penalties that the government's announced?
1: Yeah. So if the goal is to make sure all these penalties are aligned, it would make sense to go straight to the increased maximums for the Privacy Act as well, which would be a huge increase over what we have now. It would. And the other big news is that the government has now introduced its bill to raise maximum competition and consumer law penalties. And that's in line with its recent and quite brief exposure draft consultation.
0: So now the new maximum penalty for a corporation will be the greater of 50 million or three times the benefit of the conduct, or if you can't work that out, 30% of your Australian turnover for the whole time that you engage in the conduct. That's right, and the benefit from the conduct is hardly ever worked out, so it
1: almost always comes down to the other two options, which will both see a big increase. Here's what Assistant Minister for Competition, Dr Andrew Lee, said about
2: that. The amendments will increase the severity of Australia's penalty regime to be more comparable with international jurisdictions. As a result of this bill, We expect that in some cases, courts will impose higher penalties for wrongdoing. We want courts to be able to ask themselves, will this penalty deter law-breaking by this company and others like it?
0: It sounds like he's read that high court case
1: about penalties being for deterrence. I'm sure he has. And I think he's right not to oversell the change. He's just saying courts will impose higher penalties in some cases. And it's not clear that the courts have felt particularly limited by the maximum penalties that we have at the moment. But we'll wait and see if there's any impact on the sort of instinctive synthesis that the courts are talking about. Maybe we'll see it more in criminal cases, where it's not just deterrence, but also punishment and retribution, as Justice Wigney has recently said.
0: So that's one election promise underway. But were they also talking about changes to the treatment of unfair contract terms in consumer law?
1: They were. That's also been the Labor Party position since at least 2019. And the new bill deals
0: with that too. So as we discussed in an earlier episode with partner Charles Corey, terms in standard form contracts that courts find are unfair will be void, but there's no actual penalty for the business that put them there. So the ACCC has said there's no reason currently for anyone to really go out of their way to make sure terms are fair because they can just wait until the court finds against them and then make any changes they need to.
1: That's right. But under the new bill, those unfair contract terms will be prohibited and they'll attract the same maximum penalties as other breaches of the competition and consumer law and maybe the privacy law as well. Those changes will take effect 12 months after the bill is passed just to give everyone another chance to review their standard form contracts. And the team has just posted an article on our website,
0: which you'll find in the show notes. So the government didn't make a whole lot of campaign promises about competition law, but they have just about fulfilled all of them so far. I read a bit of commentary about how the Assistant Minister doesn't belong to a faction within the Labor Party, but he's actually got a fair bit done, despite that.
1: He has. He's been very busy. He's even just launched his latest book, which is called Fair Game, Lessons from Sport for a Fairer Society and a Strong Economy. So now I know what to get
0: you for Christmas, Maya. Oh, wow. I can't wait. It's a lot better than a lump of coal in my stocking.
1: (laughs) Those will be phased out by 2035.
0: (laughs) Oh, yes. Or maybe sooner. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. Do we have time
1: for any more news? I think we've got time to note that Justice Jago has been appointed to the High Court, uh, replacing Justice Keane, who retires on the 17th of October. Here's the Attorney General Mark Dreyfus, now a King's counsel. Justice Jago is the 56th justice of the High Court. She is the seventh woman appointed to the court. And when she takes her place on the court, a majority of the justices of the High Court of Australia
2: will be women for the first time since Federation.
0: Well, as with all these things, that's terrific and certainly not before time. Uh, It reminds me of what the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to say about when there'd be enough women on the Supreme Court. When I'm sometimes asked, when will there be enough? And I say when there are nine. People (laughs) people are are shocked. But there have been nine men and nobody nobody really raised a question about that. Of course, women have been the majority of law graduates for quite a while now, and they're now the majority of all solicitors in every state and territory in Australia. But it's still a pretty different story when it comes to legal partners and barristers and judges.
1: It is. I mean, on a very non-scientific basis, it seems like competition law isn't doing too badly, relatively, for whatever reason. Of course, we can't afford to be complacent. The ACCC has a majority of women at just about every level, including the commission, and now in the top job, so it's something to aspire to for all of us.
0: And are we claiming Justice Jago as a competition law justice?
1: I think we are. So on the federal court, she was the primary judge in the New South Wales Ports case, of course, Mm -hmm. where she made an extremely correct decision in favour of our clients, which we hope won't be overturned on appeal. She also did the penalties for the Colgate Concentrates cartel, which is one of the only cases where the three times the benefits limb has actually been argued.
0: And she has also given some very interesting speeches on competition law, hasn't she? Including the prestigious Bannerman Competition Lecture, which revealed her as a keen scholar of competition law history.
1: Yeah, and a great speech about the meaning of likely in high-profile cases like New South Wales Ports which is one of my favourite competitional topics.
0: dear, well, I'd love to know what your other ones are. But anyway, we need to get to Special Counsel Jeff Peterson, who's going to talk about the struggle between the states and the Commonwealth when it comes to regulating this wide brown land.
1: That's right. Jeff had a lot to say about how those tensions have played out and how the move to decarbonisation is reversing some long-term trends in regulation.
0: Let's take a listen.
1: Joining me today is Jeff Peterson, who's a special counsel in the Competition and Regulation Group. Jeff has a bit of an emphasis on regulation, and we're going to talk today about the tug of war between the states and the Commonwealth when it comes to regulated industries. Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. So we might just start with a bit of background, especially for our overseas listeners. So like the US in Australia, we've got a federation of states and territories which have their own governments and also a central federal government, which we call the Commonwealth government, which has power over certain areas and the rest is left to the states. We're all sort of aware that that's the setup. We we know the states are different. They've got different names for the same size of a beer glass. Queensland has no daylight saving for some reason. And you also can't have a pet rabbit there. And there are arguments about whose fault it is that schools and hospitals aren't better than they are between the states and the Commonwealth. Most of us, I guess, don't feel that strongly about the relationships between the different states and and between the states and the Commonwealth, or at least we didn't until COVID came along. Then we were really aware of the different rules that the different states imposed about who could and couldn't do what. And we really came up against uh, the limits of the different jurisdictions, I think, for the first time in a while. And of course, this is something that's always been an issue in the regulated industries. Jeff, what can you tell us about how the Federation's going in those
2: areas? Well, it's really quite a mixed story, Matt, across the different regulated sectors. In telecoms, we've had a, a national approach to supply of telecommunications and also the regulation of telecommunications for a very long time, really since Federation when the supply of telecom services was brought under the Postmaster General. And we also see it reflected in our constitution where we have an express power for the Commonwealth to legislate with respect to telecoms and post. It's a different story in energy, where energy was for a very long time supplied at a municipal level like by councils. It then moved to a state responsibility around the middle of the 20th century. And more recently, the supply and regulation of energy has become more of a national concern. But that has been not so much a result of... Legislation, but cooperation between the states, both in relation to interconnection of the national electricity market, but also cooperation around regulation. So you see the national electricity law, for example, as a cooperative scheme between the states where you have a lead legislator and then the states adopting that in their various state laws. And that, you know, really has been quite an achievement to get that level of state cooperation on regulation of energy over the past two or three decades. In transport, it's different again, and we still really have a patchwork of regulation in the regulation of ports and rail. So in some states, you have state-specific access regimes. In other states, there's less state regulation and greater reliance on the general national access regime. And in some cases, you have very little regulation of port and rail infrastructure at all. Sticking with transport for a minute, I guess that's one early example
1: of, of a local approach that really had to grapple with a national connection was the rail network, where I know there were different gauges in different states. Back in 1897, Mark Twain called that a paralysis of intellect after he was turfed out of his sleeper at Albury to change carriages early one morning. What can you tell us about um, how the transport sector has adapted?
2: So transport is one area where there's been less focus on coordination of regulation across states. We have had for quite a long time different approaches to the economic regulation of transport infrastructure in different states. In some cases, key port infrastructure, for example, and also rail infrastructure has remained in state hands until quite recently. And so there hasn't been as much focus on economic regulation as there has been in, for example, telecoms or energy where privatisation occurred earlier. But where that privatisation has occurred, you've seen differing approaches between states. In some cases, there have been regulation imposed at or around the time of privatisation by the state governments. In other cases, there's been very little regulation imposed and instead there's been reliance on the national access regime. So Queensland is an example of of where there has been regulation under the QCA Act and a a regime under the QCA Act, which looks in many ways quite similar to the national access regime, but it's a state-specific regime, which applies to, for example, the Darrylpool Bay coal terminal and the freight rail networks in Queensland. In New South Wales, there's less sort of heavy-handed regulation of port and rail infrastructure. And where rail infrastructure is regulated in New South Wales, for example, it's mostly relied on the national access regime. So you have Part 3A access undertakings applying, for example, to the Hunter Valley Coal Network. South Australia is a different situation, again, where there are state-specific access regimes, but they're not quite as complex as, for example, the regime that applies in Queensland. But the ACCC has always been pretty interested
1: in ports and railways and the way that they're privatised and what happens after that. And I guess since they're largely state controlled, there isn't necessarily as much that they can do about it as they'd like, apart from take people to court from time to time. Have they suggested any any change to those sectors?
2: Well, there has been quite a push in recent years from the ACCC, led by former chair Rod Sims, for a national framework for regulation of monopoly infrastructure. So as I said before, we currently have this sort of patchwork where there's some regulation in some states, but very little in other states. And as these assets have been privatized, the ACCC has been saying more and more that there needs to be effective regulation of of those privatized monopoly assets, particularly ports. As you said, it's been a big focus but also other transport infrastructure that has those same natural monopoly characteristics. So the ACCC has been pushing for what they call Part 3B. So that would be a, a new part of the Competition and Consumer Act and is not just directed at access, but is more actually focused on economic regulation of monopoly infrastructure which may not be necessarily vertically integrated monopoly infrastructure, which has more been the focus of Part 3A. It may be standalone monopoly infrastructure. For example, a port owned by a private entity. And so what we see from the ACCC is, is a push to move regulation of those assets which have previously been the domain of the states into a national framework, presumably under the ACCC's watch. And, uh, and what's that up to as a proposal? At this stage, all we've heard from the ACCC, uh, I think, Uh, some submissions or calls or advocacy for some kind of natural monopoly regulation framework, but we haven't seen the form of that or any sort of proposed form of that framework.
1: So that's the patchwork. You mentioned that the one area that's been centralised pretty much since there's been a Commonwealth is telecommunications. Tell us a bit
2: about the history of that. Yeah, so telecommunications stands out really as the one utility sector where there's been Commonwealth regulation really since the get-go, since since liberalisation of the sector and privatisation from the sort of early 90s onward. And we saw initially the Telecommunications Act, but then also the insertion of a telecommunications specific access regime in the Competition and Consumer Act. And that has continued to this day. And telecommunications is one sector where there's really never been any debate about Commonwealth versus state regulation because it's always been a Commonwealth domain, as I mentioned, really since federation.
1: And it seemed for a while like energy regulation was making an inevitable march from a localised state-based system to a more Commonwealth, or at least a more national system. But um, maybe that's looking a bit more complicated now in recent times.
2: Yes. Well, interestingly, energy regulation is one that has moved from the municipal level to the state level to the national level, but it now looks like there's a a bit of a trend back towards state regulation. So as I mentioned, the 1990s and early noughties were a period where there was really quite remarkable levels of coordination between the states, establishing national regulatory frameworks, uh, a national market, national regulators in the AER and and the rulemaking body, the AEMC, The main concern was a concern around inefficiency in the supply of energy. So you had largely state-based supply of energy at that time, a lot of assets still in government hands, and importantly, from the perspective of the national energy market, there was very little interconnection between the states at that time. And as a result, you had states building their own infrastructure when perhaps it might have been more efficient to just build more interconnection with other states and, and take supply to fill the gaps. And so there was a desire both for greater interconnection between the states, but also greater coordination around regulation of the national market as it became once those interconnections happened, but also more regulation of what were monopoly businesses. So what happened throughout the 1990s was a process of liberalization of the sector and in some states, at least privatization of a lot of those assets. So in most cases, that started with breaking up what were integrated businesses and splitting them up between the monopoly functions, essentially the network functions, and those that were potentially competitive. So you had the generation and retailing bits at each end of the supply chain, which were potentially competitive, and you had the monopoly bit in the middle. And then once you'd broken it up, it was a matter of then imposing regulation on those natural monopoly parts of the supply chain and hence you had a national regulatory framework which focused economic regulation at least on those monopoly parts of the supply chain but also created a whole lot of technical regulation around interconnection, technical standards for interconnection and the like and that gave birth initially to the National Electricity Code which subsequently found form in the National Electricity Law and the National Electricity Rules. And then throughout the early noughties We had the transition then of regulatory functions away from the states and to newly created Commonwealth bodies such as the Australian Energy Regulator and the Australian Energy Market Commission. At the same time, of course, some states were privatising those assets. So in Victoria initially and also South Australia, there was privatisation of a lot of the assets, including the network assets. And so that sort of heightened the imperative for stronger regulation as those assets moved from state hands into private hands. Privatisation, of course, happened later in some states, in New South Wales, it only happened around 10 years ago, and in some states, some of those assets still remain in state hands. So that was sort of the story of the move from state to national supply and regulation of, of energy supply. What's changed now to bring it back towards the state level? What's happened more recently is we've seen some frustrations emerging with that national framework. So as I said, a big driver for the national framework was efficiency. And so we had a whole lot of processes put in place to ensure efficiency, particularly efficiency around investment in new infrastructure, but also efficiency in how those businesses were run. So there were various regulatory processes created. One of which was the regulatory investment test, which applied to a new investment, particularly for transmission and line of distribution infrastructure, which were seen as very important to promote efficiency, but which ended up taking time because it involved identifying the need for the investment and then testing various options and conducting cost benefit analyses, which are all very important from an economic efficiency perspective, but can, of course, slow down the process of delivering new infrastructure. And that's been part of the frustration of of some states that really important transmission infrastructure, for example, has been slowed down by these processes that were created and put into the national framework. And so that's been part of the driver for states to create their own bespoke regulatory frameworks which carve out those parts of the national framework that have given rise to the frustration. So in New South Wales, for example, there have been several renewable energy zones designated and they're designated under the fairly recent state legislation, the Electricity Infrastructure Investment Act, which was passed a year or two ago. The first of those renewable energy zones is out around Dubbo. It's it's called the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone. And once that's designated, there's then a process for procurement of renewable energy generation within that zone. And that's a process that's sort of ongoing at the moment. Separate to that, there's also a process for procurement of transmission links out to those renewable energy zones. And that's quite important because many of these zones are in parts of the state that until recently, have not really had much generation infrastructure at all. Most of the generation infrastructure has been located in parts of the state where there's a lot of coal, for example, so up around the Hunter Valley, and not in those parts of the state that attract a lot of wind and sunshine. So because we're moving the location of the big generators, we're needing to augment the grid and build new transmission infrastructure out to these zones. So another element of the New South Wales RES scheme is a process for procuring that transmission infrastructure. And that process is different to the usual process that would occur under the national framework. And it bypasses some of those parts of the national framework, which have, as I said, created some frustration. But now in the last sort of five to 10 years, as we've seen more instability in energy markets, greater concern around security of supply and reliability, we've seen the states stepping in more than they had in in that sort of nineties, early noughties period. And an example of that is in New South Wales, where we have now a specific regulatory regime that's being set up to deal with the deployment of infrastructure in renewable energy zones, because that is, of course, a very high priority for the government here in New South Wales, but also in other states. And so the New South Wales government has set up a regime whereby they can establish bespoke access regimes and arrangements for deployment of that infrastructure, which allow for sort of carve-outs from the national framework. And we're also seeing similar moves being made in Victoria and other places. And do you think that's
1: sort of a temporary thing while the states move at different speeds and perhaps they'll join up again later on once the, the national system catches up? Or is it going to be more permanent, do you think?
2: But I think it's here to stay for a little while yet. And I say that because it's a function really of instability in the market and concern around both security of supply and price, but also a sense of urgency around the transition in the energy market. And what I'm sensing is that states are very keen to be part of that and a part of ensuring security of supply, but also the transition within their own state borders. And so the states are looking to sort of take back control of at least some elements of the regulatory frameworks so that they can have a level of control. Do you think we might see even more fragmentation, so more responsibility going back to the local
1: government areas like they might have had at the very beginning, or is the state the right level, do you
2: think? Look, it's hard to see it going back to the sort of municipal level. I mean, that was in the days when when we had our power stations, you know, sitting across the water at Pyrmont. And Nowadays, what we're seeing is the infrastructure that's needed going well beyond the borders of sort of local councils and municipal authorities. And for example, large pieces of infrastructure needing to be built out in parts of the state that are very windy or very sunny and large transmission lines needing to link those up to the demand centers. So it feels like the state level is about as low as it can go, but I do feel that states will want to continue to have a level of control over that. I know that Bob Hawke back in in the seventies called uh, the
1: states an anachronistic lunacy, almost as harsh as Mark Twain there, and they should be abolished, but it sounds like they're going to hang around for a while and maybe um, have more of a say in the national conversation. It'll be really interesting to see how these things unfold. Thanks very much, Jeff. Thanks, Matt.
0: What a great interview. I love the idea of Mark Twain getting tossed out of his train carriage at Albury and being so grumpy that he wrote a whole book chapter about it. <laughs> Imagine if it had been on Twitter.
1: it would be great on Twitter. So my jurisprudence teacher at Adelaide Uni, and I think yours too, Michael Detmold, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he used to say that the states couldn't actually exist because the constitution doesn't allow any unjustified discrimination based on where people live.
0: Oh, interesting. I forgot about that. And there was a time though when the states might have seemed less relevant than they used to be, but then there was the pandemic.
1: That's right. And you might remember Clive Palmer trying to run a kind of Michael Detmold argument in his case against Western Australia for their border closures. But the High Court decided there that limiting movement in a time of plague wasn't unjustified discrimination.
0: And it's interesting that it's taken the environmental issue, which I guess is the other defining crisis of our time, for the states to reverse the march towards centralisation and carve out their own green zones.
1: That's right. Um, the C is also conducting an internet sweep at the moment to identify greenwashing claims. They'll be searching at least 200 company websites and looking for environmental or sustainability marketing claims that don't
0: quite stack up. Well, there you go. Kermit the Frog was right. It isn't easy being green. And he, by the way, has an honorary doctorate from a real university, so he should know. Yeah, he's a doctor of amphibious
1: letters, apparently, for his contribution to environmental awareness and education, and showing us a green print for humanity, as the university described it. it. Well, moving right along, what can you see in
0: your crystal ball, Matt?
1: Well, when we found out that Rod Sims was retiring as chair of the ACCC, there was a lot of speculation about what he'd do next.
0: I know Graeme Samuel became a commissioner with Rugby League, having been an AFL commissioner before he went to the ACCC.
1: That's right. He was a code switcher. (laughs) Code tart. And it was suggested that Rod Sims might get a job with the AFL as well. You know, he was always a massive Hawthorne fan and he probably made more sporting and competition law references than anyone, present
0: company excluded. Thank you. And Andrew Lee excluded too by the sound of it. But I bet Rod's glad he didn't take Jeff Kennett's job as president of Hawthorne.
1: Yeah, he said he didn't want to turn a passion into a job, which is fair enough. But he may have come close to that with his new role as chair of Opera Australia. Apparently, he's been an opera lover for some decades since he first heard the famous duet from Bizet's The Pearlfishers, which featured in Peter Weir's 81 film Gallipoli.
0: too many opera and competition law references while he was chair, though. No, but I have it on pretty good authority that
1: an opera was commissioned for him and performed by members of Opera Australia for a recent birthday. Hmm. And it included a movement based on the works of the economist Adam Smith, which just sounds incredible.
0: The Invisible Hand guy. Well, I'm sorry I missed that. I didn't get the invite. But what kind of impact do we see Rod Sims having on the program in the next few years? Well, I'm looking
1: through the crystal ball now. And, you know, I thought they were bringing back Béla Bartok's classic Bluebeard's Castle, but hmm. it says here Bluebeard's cartel. Oh,
0: well, that must be a typo. Sure. But then we've got <laughs> Verdi's La Travi Article 102. Oh, well, that's one for the European Abuse of Dominance fans. Bidrigger Leto. All right. <laughs> the
1: barber of Seville penalties. Okay. That's enough. Pagliacci. What? But with three Cs. That's more of a visual joke.
0: Uh, I think that's more of a not a joke. We'd better leave it there. My Fair tradey. Not an opera. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au with any opera or opera-adjacent jokes that we might have missed.
1: Or if you have a bootleg of the Rod Sims Opera, please send that in. But we've got a lot of great guests still to come, including Sarah Lynch with the Port Report and Peter Waters on the regulation of AI. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till
0: next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Sullivan. (laughs) A tsar is born, not an opera.